buscar un mejor destino para ti, lo que viniera de ti. Welcome to the Inside the Journey podcast. This is episode number 48 for Sunday, April 13th, 2014. I'm Nelson DeWitt, and John Younger is out today, but we are the creative team behind the upcoming documentary film, Identifying Nelson Buscando a Roberto. To learn more about the film and get updates, head on over to inbarfilm.com. That's I-N-B-A-R film.com. In this week's episode, I sat down with Mila Konomos, a Korean-American adoptee who recently wrote about the challenges of reuniting with your birth family. We discussed the similarities and differences between our stories and the role that identity and culture has to play in adoption. Enjoy. My guest today is Mila Konomos, and she is an adoptee. We got to meet her because of a post she wrote called Romanticizing Adoption and Reunion, and we'll talk about that in a bit. But Mila, thank you so much for being here. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I'm glad I get to be a part of your journey in an indirect way. <laughs> it, it is a journey, isn't it? Yes, it definitely yeah. is. So today we're going to talk about these, the article, but I think a great place to start is just with your own adoption story, how you, how you came to this, and then we'll uh, get into the article. Okay, well, in a nutshell, I was born in Seoul, South Korea in 1975 and was adopted by a white American family at the, month, at the age of six months old. Um, you know, pretty typical uh, American family, had three brothers growing up. And then in 2002, I, start, I initiated a search for my Korean family, specifically my Korean mother. And then seven years later, in 2009, I got a phone call that both my Korean mother and Korean father had been located. And that same year, 2000, the summer of 2009, I traveled to Korea and met with my Appa, my Korean father, and my Oma, Korean mother, for the first time, and um, have been in reunion with them since that, so it's been about five years. One of the things that, that struck me about your article, and um, well, actually, maybe let, let's talk a little bit about the article, because you wrote, okay. and the, the headline is Romanticizing Adoption and Reunion, a modern day fairy tale that actually isn't. So maybe right. we could start with where did that come from? And, and again, you don't have to get into details, but just, you know, right. where did that, what brought you to that sentiment? <laughs> well, um, I didn't always feel that way. But, um, as far as I, I think for a while growing up, I, I was kind of your typical adoptee in the sense of, you know, it's like, oh, it's great being adopted. Life is awesome. I don't feel anything about it. I don't have any regrets. People asked me when I was younger, do you want to find your Korean family? And I said, no, I have no interest to find them. I'm I have parents. I have a family. I'm perfectly happy with them. And um, I have to say that the process of searching for that seven years and then reuniting has completely changed my perspective. Um, I think because the process of search and reunion, at least for me, forced me to have to deal with kind of the emotions and the realities of what it meant to be adopted. So I think as far as romanticizing adoption and reunion, I think in our culture a lot of times, people do see it as a fairy tale of this kind of like, oh, you, you know, you were this helpless child and then you got a 
adopted you this wonderful affluent you know white family and and now you're reunited you know from these people that you thought you lost and it's just this happy story that all comes together in a nice neat bow and um it just it can look that way. I'm guilty of even romanticizing my own story because I think I want it to be that fairy tale. Um, but I think as I've had to deal with the language barriers, the cultural barriers, the geographic barriers, obviously with my family being in Korea and me being here, I think the racial issues have been very, very challenging growing up the only Asian in a white American family and predominantly white American communities. Um, for me, there hasn't been the whole, you know, my adoptive family is very supportive. I love them and they love me, but it's created a lot of tension and friction. So, you know, I think just in summary, that's kind of been my journey along the way and why for me, it's it's not this this romance kind of story. Yeah. My, well, well, I think you, you've touched upon a good point. And I know uh, when, when I've talked to people in the media, about my story, one of the first questions we got was, do you have reunion footage? You know, mm -hmm. it, it's almost like the, you know, that's great, but we want to see people hugging and kissing and in tears. And, and I think you, you're so right about the fact that that gets romanticized, that we now look for that as the end of the end of the story, you know? Yes, you're so right. And, uh, you know, I, I was reading something the other day that said, like, you know, the, well, in Hollywood, you you come to an ending, right? Mm -hmm. You can write in this beautiful resolution. But in real life, there is no end. It just keeps going. And we have to deal with these issues yes. day after day. And and I hear you talking a little bit about that, uh, both in the story and just now. Yeah, I, um, I think what you're saying, like, it doesn't end. And I think even as much preparation as I tried to have going into reunion, there was just, there's just nothing that you can, I mean, even in your own experience, it's like when you got the information that you did and just, I mean, it just, what do you do with that? Cause you can't prepare for information that you don't know. And then once you get it, I think even for me, I think what's, what's made it so hard for me is realizing that my Oma, my Korean mother and my Appa, my Korean father, they didn't want to give me up for adoption. And I think for Korean adoptees in particular, I mean, that that is not unique. I mean, you talk to so many different Korean adoptees, about 3% of us have re actually reunited out of the 200,000 of us that there are. Um, but just time and time again, the story is, my Oma didn't want to give me up. It was because you know, of poverty or it was because of the social stigma and I think for me, that's why it's it's adoption and reunion is not this happy ending. You have these people who come together with so much baggage and so much pain and so much grief and so much loss. And you can't just like pick up where you left off because you never began. Um, so I think it's just, you know, I, I've, I've cried more than I ever thought in <laughs> my entire life. And I think, and then you, you know, you learn the circumstances under which your adoption happened. And every adoption that I've encountered um, comes because of tragedy. And, and people, people want to believe that, oh, well, adoption fixes all of that and it heals all the tragedy, but it doesn't. And especially once you reunite and you really find out the truth and you find out the details, 
it's just, it's like tragedy upon tragedy. Um, and so I think with, you know, and even seeing kind of how the lives of my Oma and Appa kind of unfolded from that point, I mean, for them losing a child in that way, it's haunted them their entire lives. They've never gotten over it and they never will. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, there are actually a lot of similarities uh, with with your story and, and my story and some of the other uh, disappeared that we've talked to. And mm -hmm. that's simply that, it, it, you know, you're thrust into a set of circumstances that you're not prepared to deal with. That can be very difficult to, to resolve. And there are all these very long-term issues you know that you're, you're trying to deal with and you're trying to um i don't know that that it takes a while to process as you were saying earlier yeah and i i think um you know with with what you were saying about how everybody wants to see the reunion footage or wants to see the the happy photos and i think that um you know nobody wants to hear about the post reunion because it it isn't that fairy tale beginning, you know. And as I've been in reunion longer, and you know, a lot of people have supported me. But as I've shared more openly, like you know, like I blog at Lost Daughters, and I do share a lot of kind of the more difficult side of my experience. People don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear how hard it is because they want to believe that adoption is this beautiful, perfect thing. And not that there isn't, you know, there aren't good things that can come out of it, like I talked about um, in the post, but it's it's so much more complicated, I think, than people want to realize. And it really creates um, a dissonance there, I think, for adoptees in situations, I guess, because everyone wants to see the fairy tale ending. But when you start to dismantle that and start to talk with them about the realities of it, it's like, no, 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 but you're so lucky, but your life has worked out beautifully. And it's like, yeah, on the surface, it, it's great, but you don't see my everyday struggles of trying to communicate with my own flesh and blood, but I have no language. To, and I'm a writer, so language is, is very important to me, and I can't. I can't. I can say hello, and I can say thank you, and I can say I love you, but I can't have a conversation like I'm having with you right now, where you talk about the nuances and the complexities of things. I just, it's, it's, it's painful. And I have two children now, and neither my Omar Appa have met them. And I think in my mind, even when I was first reuniting and had in my mind this, this romanticized version, it was like, oh, when I have children, my Omar and my Appa are going to get to hold my children, like they never got to hold me, you know, they'll get to, you know, see them grow up. And it's like, no, that's, that, that was what I wanted to happen. But reality is completely different from mm -hmm. that. They haven't met them. They haven't held them. You know, they've gotten to see pictures and for that I'm grateful, of course, but it doesn't play out the way that people think it does. I think you make a great point about tragedy. And again, this is another similarity between your story and what some of the disappeared have to go through, where the disappeared are coming from this war-torn country. And, you know, I, I have a friend who was literally taken from the arms of her mother against her will, you know, and 
when you find that out, when you learn of your own history, that's very, very hard to to come to a resolution to, you know, and you, you said something that I say all the time, which is like, what do you do with that? I don't know. You know, like I have no idea what you would do with those kind of things. And I think you have to learn how to deal with very open, unanswered questions that there's no like easy right or wrong. Yeah. And you, you actually just said something. I think um, a misperception people have too is that once you reunite, all your questions get answered, you find closure, you find resolution. And even though I've, you know, quote unquote, reunited with both my Korean mother and my Korean father, there's still so much that I don't know. Um, not just because of the language barrier, but because of the complexities of it and the pain of it. You know, there are things that my Oma can't talk about because it's too painful for her. There are things that my Appa won't talk about because it's too painful for him. You know, they're not they're not together. And um, I think when you talk about, you know, the adoptee that you met who was literally ripped from her mother's arms you know my my case wasn't quite as dramatic as that but it was a situation where my own mom my korean mother didn't want to give me up but her older sister my aunt my emo basically in korean culture if you have an older sibling and they tell you to do something you do it the way that my oma told me was she was like god to me so i had to do what she said and so it was actually my emo who physically took me to the orphanage, to the agency, and relinquished me. Um, my appa had no control over the situation. He was, um, he didn't know that I was being given up for adoption. No one consulted him. He didn't find out until a year later that I had been um, given up for adoption. And he was, he, my, basically my woman disappeared on him. So he searched for her, eventually found her. By that time, she was married and had two other children, but they met in secret, and she basically laid the news on him, like, sorry, I don't have your daughter anymore. And he was absolutely devastated because, um, and, you know, from the pieces that I can piece together, it does seem like they both are telling the truth as, as much as they, you know, know how and can. So I think in that sense, you know, like you said, there, there's so many circumstances surrounding adoption where it's just, it's, it is tragic and the parents didn't want to relinquish their children and you know so yeah <laughs> another theme that you you talked about in the um in the article was the idea that everyone has their own journey or the right to their own journey their own path and and i think that that is something that i've uh, I, i've seen as well and I, you know, um, and every now and then I have to step back. Like there's something that uh, is really hard to deal with or I just need time away <laughs> from being so open and public with my um, with my own story. So yeah. maybe you could talk a little bit more about the, that sentiment because, you know, that comes out very strongly in the article. We all have a right to our own journey. Our own path. Yeah, I think... Um... Where that's coming from for me is I think there's people so often want to take adoptee stories and use them for their own purposes. Um, a lot of times to paint adoption in a certain way. Um, I think there is a lot of pressure 
on adoptees, at least in my experience, you know, in the, with the group that I blog with, the Lost Daughters, we talk about this a lot, where there's there's this pressure that they want, they want us, they want someone like me to have a particular story to tell. And they want my journey to turn out a certain way so that they can feel resolved, so that they can feel good about, you know, adoption or whatever, you know, whatever it is about my story that they hold on to. And I think, um, I don't, I don't want my story repurposed for somebody else's agenda or, you know, feel good, whatever, you know, I think, um, but I think also um, every adoptee story is very different and there are obviously our commonalities and there are things that we can share and relate to one another with, but I think ultimately what, what has not existed in our culture for a long time is an openness to let adoptees take their own individual journeys. It's kind of like either you're the good role model adoptee or you're the bad angry adoptee. I think the the difference between our stories is is the fact that uh, many of the children, many Salvadoran adoptees, were separated in a war torn country, and so their parents or their family members didn't give up the child willingly, you know, and so where where I feel conflicted is is that yes, everyone has a right to their own journey, but as Isabel, uh, one of our previous guests, said, you know, you're dealing with family members who sort of have a right to know where you are. And, you know, th this brings up a very complicated dynamic, you know, like, do, do you, what I guess I'm trying to say is that some of the Salvadoran adoptees I've talked to don't really want to know about their past and don't want to know where they've come from. And I think people have that right, but it's very hard then to go and tell the families, you know, sorry, you know, we, we don't know where your, your daughter or son is and they have to live with those wounds for, for a very long time. So it's, it's a complicated, tricky situation that I think is, is a subtle, but big difference between our, our situations. Yeah, I, um, that's a really good point. Um, I think with, I guess specifically with Korean adoptees, I mean, you know, there are the first generation of Korean adoptees that were, um, many of them came to be not, obviously not in the same situation, but because of the Korean War, either, um, you know, they lost family or it was they were separated and couldn't find their families again and that kind of thing. So obviously that wasn't my generation because I was adopted in the 70s. Um, I think that there are a lot of Korean adoptees who, you know, go to search and they find their birth parents or, you know, Korean parents. And a lot of times the mothers, um, they will refuse contact, not because they don't want to meet their son or daughter, but because they're afraid. They're afraid of their current husband finding out because they've been bearing the secret all of their lives because of Korean culture. Um, they're afraid that maybe they'll lose the job that they have if their employer finds out um, because you can, you can, you know, fire or not hire in Korea a, a mother who has kind of 
have that secret or given up a child. You know, it's a very different culture, and I think it makes it hard for Americans to understand the context in which, you know, these adoptions and reunions are taking place. Um, so I think that's something that, you know, a lot of times I have to explain to people as far as, um, you know, why reunion is kind of complicated. Because in America, there's not the same the same stigma there used to be back in the 1950s in America, you know what I mean, that it's, it's, that's long gone. I mean, you can be a single mother in America and, you know, it's, it's fine. In Korea, though, you can't, you can't share secrets like that. So I have adopted friends who have contacted their birth mothers, but their birth mothers saying no, but it's not because they don't love this child or they don't want to see them. It's because they're just completely afraid and then completely shamed all their lives into not um, being able to have contact with the children that they actually love. Yeah, yeah I, I think you bring up a couple of really good points there. And the first one is simply fear, that fear has a lot to do with people uh, not searching or rejecting contact or all of these things. And, um, you know, there's, there's no easy solution or no easy way to to go around that. But I, I just want to acknowledge the fact that I think fear has such a big uh, role in, in the adoption and reunion process. And you were asking me before the interview about how my birth parents, um, how they, you know, if they were supportive towards everything that, that I've been through. And I think that they, you know, they, they were nervous at the beginning. They were worried about the influence that my family would have on me. But I think that to their credit, they overcame their fear of whatever and allowed me to just explore and get to know this other family. And the second thing that you talk about is culture. And that I think is very important. Uh, you know, you're saying that the culture in Korea is such that many people can't have these reunions. But I'm also wondering for you, what was it like to sort of be between cultures? Because I, I feel like that's something that I've been, you know, like I, I'm not 100% American, but I'm not 100% Salvadoran either. I'm I, yeah. somewhere in between. And I wonder how you uh, deal with that. I can totally relate to you on that as far as, be, you know, feeling not completely American and definitely not feeling completely Korean. And, you know, I guess... Some people maybe manage that well. I it causes me a lot of distress. Um, I don't really, I don't really know how to manage it. I feel like I'm just kind of trying to figure it out along the way. And honestly, since having children, you know, I have a three-year-old and an infant. Um, since having children, I feel like that's kind of compelling me to 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 deal with this and to figure it out because I I think for me in particular growing up in a predominantly white community, I grew up feeling very ashamed of my Korean heritage and of the way that I looked. You know, I wanted to be a blonde-haired, blue-eyed white girl. And my culture was that of white America. Um, but obviously, you look at me, and I'm, you know, I'm Korean. Um, my children, you know, they're half Korean and half Greek you know, and white. And so I think um, I want my children to be able to grow up managing their kind of, you know, complicated identity. And so 
I don't, I've kind of stumbled along the way. Um, I definitely eat much more Korean food now than I did, you know, five years ago, um, trying to learn the language, but it's, I don't know, like, there's just so many differences between American and Korean cultures. Like, I go to Korea and I fit in as long as I don't open my mouth. You know, like, I just can blend in. Here in America, it's especially because I live in the South, you know, um, it's like I, you know, and I marry a white guy, basically. It's uh, everywhere I go, it's like, where are you from? You know, where did you learn to speak such good English? You know, and I'm just like, where are you from? You know, like, don't you know there are Asian people who speak English and have grown up here, you know? So I think trying to, the identity thing has been a huge issue for me as a, as a transracial, transnational adoptee. And, you know, and as you said, I mean, you don't ever really feel like you're in one. You're just kind of in this limbo, this in-between where you're trying to bring the two together. But how do you, you know, bring the Korean into the American when you're still trying to figure it out or, you know, so I think um, it's that that's a process and adoption. I mean, I think that people really minimize and think that it's like, oh, it's not that big a deal. But once you become an adult and you don't have the context of your adoptive family anymore and you're having to interact with the world and they interact with you based on what they see, it, it really makes things very complicated. Yeah. Uh, you, you bring to mind a great story. I was in... Um, I was in Panama, I was visiting my family and we went to some park and there's this American family and they're playing in the, in the park. And I go up to them and I say, you have really beautiful children. And they say, oh, wow, thank you. Your English is great. And I go, yeah, I, I grew up in Boston. My Spanish, that's not so good. <laughs> No, I totally, I have, I have like so many stories like that too. And I, I used to, when I was living in Augusta, Georgia, which is a very, you know, small Southern town, I was, work, I worked at a restaurant downtown for about six years. And, you know, I was the only Asian, you know, person in that restaurant uh, working. But anyway, I, you know, I had a table, it was a, a mom and a, her adult son. And one of my friends, one of my coworkers, came up to me and said, oh, your table over there is asking for you. And I was like, oh, okay, fine. And she's like, but wait, I have to tell you something. And so she says, they, she, they, they stopped me and asked me for their waitress, Jolene. And I was like, Jolene? What, what, are, you, what are you talking about? And she's like, she thought your name was Jolene. And when I told her that wasn't your name, she said, no, that has to be your name because she's a Chinese girl. You know, and, and it's just like, it's amazing. And and when I worked at the restaurant, I mean, I had so many guests and customers asking, you know, where, like what you said, where did you learn to speak such good English? Or, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's amazing. Just, you know, just you, you learn to like laugh about it and you learn to deal with that stuff because you just have to. But even within your own, trying to make sense of your own identity, that kind of thing can just be so complicated in your head where it's like, I want people to recognize that I'm Korean, but I also want them to recognize that I'm not just Korean. You know what I mean? Like I, you know, it's just, it's, it feels like a big mess and even trying to figure out how it is that I want other people to perceive me is challenging because sometimes I don't know how to perceive myself. Mm. <laughs> so I, I guess I'll, uh, I'll answer the question myself since that's only fair. <laughs> You know, I think of the, the, you know, one thing I, I realized at some point was that culture has an interesting way of 
you know, they're the positive sides, the foods, the dress, those kind of things. But sort of the, the other, the flip side of the coin is that it tends to restrict our worldviews, you know, so that, that people say, if you're American, this is what you are. If you're Salvadoran, this is what you are. If you're Korean, this is what you are. And the people within those societies have a very hard time escaping outward. And what I've come to value is that I live in the middle of those worlds. So I can float in between any one of them and I can just cherry pick the best parts. So, yeah, it, it was tough sort of being a Latino in a very white uh, suburb and not being able and not sounding Latino. You know, you're in this this sort of no man's land. But at the same time, I can walk into a, a Chinese restaurant and have dim sum and I'll be the only Latino in there and I'll feel fine because I've been here before. I know this, what this feels like. Whereas some of my other friends are scared to like come down to Central America because they're the only ones there. They're the only ones. They're afraid to stand out within that other culture. And for me, I've been a standout my whole life. So I kind of decided to own that. And that's one of the reasons why I think like online, I have this Nelson slash Roberto because I'm both at the same time. Now, that's a no, that's a really good point. That's a really great perspective. And I mean I think there is something to that where you you become accustomed to just being the oddball out or whatever and standing out and so you're not uncomfortable in situations. It's just the norm. Hmm. And uh you know, one of our other guests uh also said that the the hard part about sort of reuniting or doing this search is that you are forced to challenge your own identity, you know, That's very true. and that you, you know, when you go looking, you, you have to deal with all of these issues that we've been talking about today and really take a hard look at yourself in the mirror and say, who am I? Where do I want to be? What do I want to fit in? You know, and, um, you know, that can be very challenging. That's, as someone who had that kind of dumped on me, you know, yeah, it can definitely. be very challenging to work that out. Definitely. Uh, so I guess that's a that's a really good place to kind of end it to wrap things up. So I'll just turn it over to you. I don't know if you have any anything else you would like to share or or say with. No, with I just want to thank you for this opportunity just to talk with you, and I actually am um, really moved by your story and. Um, can't wait to see the documentary when it comes out. But it's always great connecting with another adoptee. And um, I actually wish we could talk more. <laughs> so, all right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. And we'll see everyone next time. And that is it for this week's episode of Inside the Journey. Thank you so much for being here with us. It means a lot to John, myself, and our guests. The best way that you can support our film and our work is simply by sharing this episode with someone that you know. You can do that by liking it on Facebook or sharing it on Twitter or maybe just emailing it to someone that you think would, would in, appreciate this episode. Anyway, uh, John and I will be back next week and we'll see you then. Mm -hmm.